Hello everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon. The show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's show is Erica Davis-Marsh, who wrote, directed and produced her latest award-winning short film, Coda. We jumped into Erica's film festival experience, how she worked with deaf actors and the deaf community to tell an authentic story centering on a child of deaf adults, and a decision to turn down a prestigious aeronautical scholarship to follow a lifelong passion for filmmaking and dance. So if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam, or sitting behind a desk at work, hope you enjoy my interview with Erica. So you're on the short film festival circuit with your film Coda. How's it going so far? It's going pretty well so far. We premiered at Cleveland International and we won the Programmers Award there. And then we went on to New York uh, to Real Abilities, which is the largest disability festival. And our film deals with disability topics. And uh, we won their their award, uh, the Founders Award there. Mm -hmm. And we've been at LA Shorts and we're going to Nashville. And so it's, it's it's been going pretty well for us, I think. And what's been the impact of winning the Programmers Award at the uh, Cleveland International Film Festival and the Founders Award as well for the film's sort of profile? I think it's helped. um, I mean, there's been a little bit of interest in terms of professionally because of that as well. But I think maybe the the greater thing is that uh, more festivals have reached out to us Mm -hmm. to look at that for their festival. And so we're getting kind of a wider audience you know, nationally and internationally because of that. And so I guess that's the biggest impact so far is that more people are getting to see, you know, short film, which doesn't have as many avenues as a, as a, you know, full, full length feature to, to be watched. I mean, in terms of festival programming, where Cody's been playing genre wise, and in terms of what block of short films has it been sort of playing before and after it? So far, the ones that I've seen, um, it doesn't, it, they've seemed to be, uh, kind of programming it in groups, uh, that don't seem to have a, a real solid genre. It's not like, oh, the sci-fi genre or something mm. like that. Um, it seems to be playing with both other dramas and other, uh, some, uh, short, like comedy pieces. I will mm-hmm. say it usually plays first or last. It's, okay. it's never in the middle. It's always either how they want to start out the program or how they want to finish the program, which is kind of nice. In terms of the other films, have you seen any other films that are sort of dealing with sort of disabilities on the festival circuit? Or are you kind of like, from what you've seen, the kind of only one that's out there currently at the moment? Well, obviously at the Disability Festival, Real Abilities, that was all full of it. But um, yeah. so I know we're not the only one out there on the... Oh, sorry, I should on... just say main, sorry, mainstream. Sorry. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. But I will say there's not... There's not that many, and there's certainly not that many that don't sort of, like, our film is about, you know, the deaf community, or mm-hmm. but it's not really about being deaf. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? It's not yeah. about overcoming deafness, or it's not about how that impedes or doesn't impede their life. It's really just about that the people have, how deafness kind of um, just affects the people, and mm-hmm. then the people live their life, right? So, yeah. um seen a lot of that for sure and even when I do see some sort of disability thing it tends to kind of focus on for lack of a better term kind of curing or like Mm. overcome the disability and uh, I know from my my friends who you know 
my deaf friends and, uh, you know, things like that, um, that, you know, that's the one thing that they really are tired of. You just want to see themselves as they are, which is just human beings going through good times and bad times. I mean, what's the reaction been like from the deaf community so far? So far it's been, it's really been really positive. We've had, we have a lot of deaf actors in our film and, uh, when they came to see the, my, um, screening uh that this is my thesis at usc so Mm -hmm. when we they came to see my screening uh that they did at the end of the year uh it was um it was really they were really moved you know that they that they were portrayed kind of uh you know the whole film was full of deaf people and Mm -hmm. it was one thing and it wasn't just one person and it was about the whole community and things like that and i think those are the things that they really enjoyed about it. I mean, they liked the film for the entertainment factor that they liked, but I think on a personal level, it kind of just touched them because, you know, you got to see more than one side, more than one person. So yeah, yeah, so far been really good. And, and, um, yeah, it feels like people on social media when they get to see it or when they get to see about it, Mm. really want to see it if it's not in a location that they're at. So it's been, it's been really nice so far. And just overall, I mean, I'd love to get your hot take as a sort of filmmaker on the recent popularity of, say, deaf stories or uh, deaf characters in more mainstream films like The Quiet Place, Silence. Do you think attitudes towards sort of disability are changing? I mean, I think the community, you know, the filmmaking and entertainment community is definitely more open for sure. And they're certainly willing to take a look at something that feels unique uh, you know, like the quiet place was like a unique take on deafness or like how it fit into the story and things like that. But I will say we're still kind of, I, you know, from what I can tell from, you know, people who are trying to like break in either as actors or writers or, you know, directors and things like that, that we're still a little bit, you know, we're, we're still kind of at the beginning of it. Right. Cause when mm-hmm. I, uh, we're just, when, when we pitch or when people pitch stories that don't, like I said, don't deal with just the disability with just put them in the story. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, you know, I don't know, it, it's met with a little bit of like, yeah, but then what's unique about that story? And you're like, oh, it's just, that's the kind of the whole point I think is that mm. those that have other, you know, challenges are trying to be seen sort of as not just as not just defined by whatever that particular issue is. Uh, you know, just like a short man doesn't want to just be a short man. He's also a man, right? You know, yeah. it doesn't want one defining thing in their life. So, I, I mean, I think we're, I mean, you know, it's always where it's, it's a progression. I think they're definitely there. I think the hardest part about the disability community in, in unlike say something like, um, like say the African American community or whatever, or like, or, mm. or like a, you know, the Asian community or something, mm. uh, even though there's a lot of, differences obviously like in the Asian community ultimately there's sort of uh, some similarity but you know there's it's a lot different to be deaf than it is to be in a wheelchair than it is to be yeah you know yeah. Uh, mentally impaired or have some sort of you know any of the, so mm. it's, it's very different so it's an interesting thing because they like they try to band together as a community and I think that gives them power everywhere but also in the you know in the entertainment community to kind of demand certain things so 
Yes, definitely getting better. You know, like, you know, CJ Jones, who's in our film, um, you know, was able to be in baby driver and he Mm. works working on avatar and things like that. So, you know, there's definitely progress, but at the same time, one person, you know, or one role thousands feels a little small considering how many, you know, how many people there are out there that are, deaf or blind or yeah. in a wheelchair or have some something I don't know so I I just hope that you know everybody continues to like open up their own minds about mm-hmm. like how people can be used and how, you know it's a little harder you do have to make accommodations you know we had on our film we had to have you know sign language interpreters yeah. and if you know look what we had once it volunteered because we were a student film but if that's somebody you have to pay that's a that's an expense you know yeah. all productions are willing to add that expense so i don't know some some both there's always like hope but i still think we have a you know a long way to go I just wondered, and this is a bit sort of tangential, but I know in terms of sort of cancel culture that small hardline groups and vocal online groups can be upset by, say, a filmmaker they seem um, as an outsider of their community tackling, say, like a social issue that directly affects them. Um, And I just wondered, have you felt or seen any backlash online when you, or even when you were sort of like pitching the film to people to convince them that you, um, not that you really should, because I really believe that, you know, anybody can tell any story they so wish, but in terms of like, your sort of like experience or dealing with that sort of deaf community sort of like prior to this, was there any sort of resistance that you felt sort of tackling the sort of um, subject matter? So far there hasn't been any resistance, but I will say uh, we, I really, and uh, my producer really, uh, my main producer really thought about that quite mm. a bit. So because we were, you know, when I was writing the story, I was very aware. I, I At first I kind of was writing a story that was more focused on a deaf character. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I didn't really want to tell – I didn't want to step into that, you know, where I was trying to tell a deaf person's story. Yeah. And so I decided to tell the hearing person's story, which is more similar to mine. My, mm-hmm. um, my brother-in-law is C.J. Jones, so right. I am around – death and community as a hearing person so i feel like i can relate to uh bits and pieces of of that part of alex's story Mm. and and that was kind of a conscious decision and then when we were putting together the team we reached out to um deaf uh producer mm-hmm. to you know help us with that also just to make sure that we were um you know like that he read the story his name's mm. Javon Wetter he uh, went to AFI he read the story we chatted with him about you know whether whether it felt authentic to him he has yeah. a coach child so you know we went back and forth we went out to a lot of we went out to a lot of CODAs and interviewed mm-hmm. them about their story and hard of hearing people and interviewed them about their story and their feelings and tried to really put as much you know time into the background yeah. and, and our sense of that because we were aware that there could be a backlash mm. potentially and that really the backlash I think is mostly because of two reasons. One, people Mm. don't do their research. They don't really invest themselves into the community and the people. Or two, it's about them not being enough, right? There's just not enough stories. And so they see the one story and they have to comment on it because that's their only way to get their point of view out that they want to be seen or they want to be heard or they want to be 
able to tell their stories. And so I get that frustration. So I don't take it personally. It hasn't really happened for us so far, but we're only at the beginning. So I guess it could, you know, potentially happen. And, you know, and I I definitely think it's fine if people want to get their get their frustration out for not seeing themselves accurately i Mm. I think our film accurately represents a portion you know a sliver of a population it certainly doesn't represent everybody's story and everybody's um point of view as no film could yeah you know we take it so so I'm I'm kind of prepared for it. I don't really I don't want to be in some sort of conflict with people, but but I, yeah. I'm prepared if somebody is. And I do think they have some points. You know, if we wouldn't have cast authentically with deaf actors, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. I mean, we did our very very best to like really honor the um, the the place the, what the film was about. Right, yeah. the film. The film was about a person, but it was a person who had these particular experiences mm-hmm. growing up in a deaf family. And we really wanted those people to really be deaf and those experiences to really be real yeah. as could. And, and it helped. The actors who we who portrayed, you know, all the deaf actors really gave us a lot of insight, gave me a lot of insight into even deeper than I already had as sort of like a periphery member of like the greater community, you know, like I, you know, I would be at events and, you know, things like that Mm. with my family, but they could give us, you know, their points of view. Interestingly enough, it's not just hearing people, um, in a you know deaf family, but also our our uh, our main actor uh, Ryan, yeah. uh, who plays Josh, he is the only deaf member of of a hearing family, and he felt similar to Alex's right. sort of not in the opposite way, but not really being able to totally fit in with his family and and mm. feeling like a little adrift. So he was all on board for the story from the very get go. Ultimately, that's all we can ask is that, the you know, when our actors and our, you know, we go out to, you know, other members of the community and they're on board, <laughs> then we just have to be like, okay, we're, we're, we're okay. We're, 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 we're honoring the community. We're honoring the people being mm. uh, on it. Um, and, and we're doing our best to give like an interesting story and also you know an interesting point of view mm-hmm. you know a certain point of view it's perhaps not every coda's story but it is some and it is some people who are hard of hearing and clearly ryan like i said yeah. uh it in the opposite way so it's clearly a story that's out there and and it's true and that's what we're going for just some version of truth out there so and what was the creative spark that set you off on the journey towards writing and directing coda it's a couple things. Um, I I used to be a dancer, so the dance part was is always part of me. I used to I work in musical theater, and so dance movies and dance in general has always yeah. been a part of me. And um, at at some point, I had been uh, one of the sparks of kind of sign language mixing with dance kind of spark came from. I've been watching a musical play that they had uh, that had been interpreted through sign language. All the sort of dance uh, elements that were supposed to if you had watched it in English, Mm -hmm. um, it would have been a dance 
portion. And instead, they sort of stood there and just signed the right. the tricks or whatever. Yeah. And I was oh, that's just such a waste because um, sign language is so physical yeah. and 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 dance is so physical. I just always thought that there was could have been ways to sort of bring that together and, and incorporate mm-hmm. the sign language more clearly in, into the dance. And so that kind of had been like running around mm. in my mind for a while <laughs> and then, and in lots of different forms, I, I've kind of been thinking about this, a version of this, yeah, maybe six or seven years, quite mm-hmm. a while. Actually. Yeah. I, yeah. It's just sort of some version of it's been just like floating around in my brain in different ways I think the other part, um, the kind of family story kind of just stems in general from, I, I really like a, a coming of age story. It's just kind yeah. of story that I've always been, uh, drawn to where somebody is taking that next step from sort of what their childhood was mm-hmm. to what their adulthood will be, or they don't always have to be young though. Some previous life to their new life or yeah. that thing. And so I was kind of floating around with that and my own kind of, you know, I was at grad school. I was sort of floundering a little bit in terms oh, of trying yeah. to figure out like who I was, what okay. I was doing. You know? Yeah. Why was I here? What was I trying to accomplish? You know, those kinds of things. And those all just kind of meshed into the story of, you know, Alex, who's, uh, you know, I set in this dance world and I set also in sort of a, a, a version of my family world. Yeah. Um, actually because I wanted to give CJ another, uh, you know, an opportunity to, mm. um, to, to work this. I began writing this before he got baby driver or before he okay. got tar. So yeah. those just happened to be happenstances in terms of our film, but also for him, you know, mm. So that's kind of kind of where it is. I just I really wanted to tell us, you know, a family story, you know, about someone who just doesn't quite fit in and and um, is working through what that means and how to live, you know, how to live with a little bit of like dichotomy in your life. You're never yeah. going to be both. You're going to actually have to learn how to live with sort of uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You know? And without giving any sort of spoilers, where I hope the dialogue seems between Alex and Josh at the bar. I mean, it's pretty much sign language. And I just wanted to know, was there anything so like technical you were doing on the page to indicate that these scenes would just be signed? Uh, Yeah, on the written page, we set up a convention where if it was signed, it was in italics, basically. So that's just from a screenwriter thing. Mm -hmm. It took me a minute, though, and a couple of suggestions from my professors before we got to that, because they were like, we're confused. Um, uh. And that seemed to be the easiest way. So we just sort of set up anything you see in italics will be in sign language. In terms of uh, how we got it into sign language, uh, we we did a – I wrote it obviously in English. Mm-hmm. And then we hired uh, a deaf a, um, ASL uh, master, and uh, she, she put it and gave us – you know, we worked with her on the translation for that into, yeah. uh, into ASL. Like we, 
we were, she did her, you know, she did her translation based on what she kind of interpreted. And then she and I talked about like the nuances and then maybe it would change a little bit here or there. And then she taught it to all the actors, including the deaf actors. Mm -hmm. Um, We, you know, because obviously a translation is a choice, right? A choice of how you're going to put it in this new language. So we, so even though obviously the deaf actors that we were working with spoke American sign language, it wasn't on them. It wasn't their burden to have to translate it into American sign language, which I never really thought about too hard uh, in terms of how much of a burden that is Mm -hmm. until I was talking to Ryan who had worked on for many seasons on the show Switched at Birth here in, I guess it was ABC Family here, yeah. what it is anywhere else. Anyways, and he was said, yeah, I'd get my pages, and then I would have to work on the translation. Really? Wow. So, I know, so crazy. And so he would, I think there may have been somebody who would watch it afterwards or something, but I'm not really sure. It sounded like for the most part he would translate it himself. And, uh, and then, you know, and so he'd have to memorize it, memorize the translation, make sure that, you know, he didn't mess it up and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I might be a little wrong, but it is his story, but that's, yeah. that's the impression I got. And then for sure on, uh, on auditions and things like that, right. They're always mm-hmm. having, to, they're getting a lot of times pages in English and then having to translate it into American Sign Language themselves, which is kind of interesting and something mm. I didn't really know. And to, to be honest, we didn't do great in our auditions with that. We, you know, we did the same kind of thing. You know, we're working off the same bias all hearing people were kind of working off of. Yeah. And, and maybe it's also just sort of, uh, you know, an accepted you know, uh, something accepted by the community. But it's interesting. If I ever do a, a, a show or something in sign language, I'll just, I think I'll really make sure that the, uh, the pages for the auditions are also, you know, given to somebody with a translation, you know, video mm. translation. Cause I think it's not really fair that they have to put the translation through themselves. Anyway. So that's how we got into American sign language. We, we worked with, um, this, uh, ASL master named, uh, Margo Senek and, yeah. um, and she, she did all the translations and then worked with the actors. And then if there was any sort of, you know, discrepancy or whatever, uh, she would make the final, you know, if the actors wanted to do something else or whatever, based on their own sort of mm. uh, sense of it, you know, she would make that final decision. I didn't, I didn't make the final decision. We would discuss right. it. She, I let her be the final arbiter of the sort of languaging, mm-hmm. uh, for that and um and then on set my producer Cassandra Jones is fluent in sign language right. and so she knew the translations and she would just double check before we were shooting that everybody was on point <laughs> and then you know didn't have any questions and then she'd watch some of the uh takes and things like that especially uh for um Carrington, who obviously learned sign language to play Alex. So we just wanted to make sure that she, you know, that all her sign language was never um, 
unreadable or right. you know what I mean? Yes, or like right. yeah, something like that, right? So I mean that's true for everybody. There were a couple takes, even the native speakers, you know, just like everybody, we can bumble a word here and there. Yeah. And if you don't language, you don't know that there's a stumble. <laughs> In this kind of language, so yeah. it was it was great to have her there to be like, oh, you got to redo that. <laughs> that, that. That didn't happen well. <laughs> I mean, you come from a musical theatre background, and I, you know, having directed and choreographed the stage show musical of romance, romance for UC Davis, I just wonder what your biggest takeaway from that experience was, and how it informed your the way that you approach the dance sequences. That was the first major thing that I had uh, directed. It mm. kind of really put me solidly on this sort of directing path. Yeah. Um, before that, I'd sort of really thought of myself more as a performer. That's And I, I do enjoy performing. Um, but that really set me down how much I really felt like every time, every actor I was performing through was an interesting thing. Um, so that's, I always just feel like, Oh no, I'm, I'm getting to perform every role when I, it's so much more fun. (laughs) Um, but in terms of the dancing, I really want, I always want dance to be, especially in a, in a show kind Mm. of situation to be character based and through character and to be sort of telling a portion of the story probably more more like the psychology of the story or like the emotional take of the story yeah so when we work with Tice on on these elements he and I, I mean, I didn't choreograph this one. I didn't, I certainly did not have the skill for this particular one mm. um, level. We needed somebody like a super master, like Tice Diorio. Uh, so, and, and we were blessed when he came on board, but so he and I sat and I had written out sort of a dance description of kind of what I thought was sort of happening in the dance. You know, this kind of the the person starts out on stage by themselves and join, you know, and things like that, and 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 these sort of ugh, not like two separate sides of herself kind of coming together. And I'd yeah. written sort of this whole kind of thing of what I thought uh, was happening, and then he looked at it, and we sort of talked about it, and then we had a song written the final song uh, Mm -hmm. was written for us. And so we worked with the songwriter as well to kind of, to shape sort of the, you know, timing and things like that. But mostly I would say Tyson and I, once we got the basic shape in there, we were always just trying to dial in on Alex's story and like where Alex would be sort of story-wise, even though it was a dance in in each moment, like what was she feeling? How could we bring, how could we bring in more of the sign language? Mm-hmm. It, you know, how can we, how can we bring in more of sort of the themes that the film is going for? Just all that kind of stuff. So obviously when I got to do, you know, romance, romance, I got to sort of do everything. Right. Uh, but also I was limited by my own ideas. So I really loved working with Tice because I had my ideas, he had his ideas, and we really got something, you know, I think really unique and, and interesting because of kind of the, uh, the melding together of sort of our best ideas. So, yeah, that's kind of where it's kind of where I took it. On the good side, I guess mm. Tice is used to working with people who don't know anything about dance. 
And so right. it's so nice to work with, you know, a director or like a, another creator that can speak his language. So mm. there was a hand that we could kind of okay. go. I would, I would sometimes just act out or, you know, whatever, uh, hit, you know, the thing I wanted to some degree and he'd be like, ah, got it. I mean, like a no spoilers, but the end dance sequence is incredibly involved. It, you know, it does incorporate sign language, like dancing and storytelling, almost like in a single movement. Well, not almost. I mean, it does. There are moments where all these three, these sort of three things, elements, are all being visually expressed in one sort of fluid motion. And I just wondered, in terms of, in terms of your storytelling, or even in the script, was that something that you? I mean, you did spoke about having a sort of a document outside of that. No, it was always in the script. It was like I said, I'd I'd written out what where I thought the dancing pieces were and what mm. I thought they were supposed to express or be about. Um, there's an, another dance sequence uh, earlier in in sort of the middle of the film. Mm. Originally, that was actually at the beginning of the film. It sort of morphed its way into the middle of the film uh, mm. as we it, <laughs> as things do. But that one too, I'd also written, you know. I didn't write the moves down. Right. I didn't know what choreography was going to be. I just wrote down, you know, sort of the feeling, the mood, mm. what I wanted the choreography and the music to kind of portray or mm -hmm. be a part of. And, you know, some of it ended up ex sort of exactly like I put it. And some of it was, you know, different, but, but it was always there and it was always intentional. It was one of the things that funnily enough that probably only I in my mind kind of knew what I was going for though, right. some, you know, um, and it was up to me to kind of bring all the um, elements together, mm -hmm. you know, the music and the choreography and the cinematography and to some degree, sort of the lighting design and things that we did. Yeah, it was, it's an interesting thing. I will say that that is a moment that if you read the script, I don't, you wouldn't get, uh, you would get what I was going for, but right. you wouldn't see what, what we ultimately accomplished. And right. I think that's what directors are supposed to do. Though. I think mm. they're supposed to sort of have a vision. There's a script that's a document that you follow. And obviously the better the script is, the easier the job is and the less kind of, uh, tricky, tricky elements, you know, to mm. deal with later. But ultimately, it's it kind of all the ideas get funneled through uh, the director, and they and if you're if you're have your vision strong enough, I think they all just slot in like a, a weird little Jenga puzzle or something, and you're like, ah, oh, it stands, it works, you know, yeah. <laughs> and. And that's kind of that's kind of what I did, yeah. And uh, some of my professors were not sure I could pull it off, but they didn't know my dance background right. and something like that. So you know, sometimes you just have to believe in your own self, and and yeah. then just that's okay. I got it. Just today, I was watching a, a current affairs program, and a segment came on about disabled dating. I mean, that's something. I mean, it's not a big part of the movie, but I just kind of wondered in terms of moving forward if you were going to do a feature film version of Coda was that something that you were going to further explore in terms of the sort of stigmas and difficulties and realities of dating within the deaf community I think a feature version or I, I think part of what you don't see but would start to happen had the story lasted longer mm. we were kind of a little bit aware of that meaning you know how much time has passed by right yeah if if you start to sort of uh you know see 
date date someone long term, right? Then all you can't hide all the little things about yourself and mm. maybe for just, you know, for us just sort of like normatively abled kind of person, that's mostly you're just kind of hiding your own personality quirks and things like that. Mm. But for somebody else, you're maybe having to hide, how, you know, how difficult certain things are. Yeah. My sister, who's, you know, married to CJ, yeah. you know, they, you know, sh um, you know, there's just some things that he doesn't want to participate in because the experience isn't fun for him because, right. uh, you know, and and they've had to work through that in their relationship. What you know, because obviously you want people you love to be around you and to mm. enjoy the things you do. But it's not always true. And I think more so than just normal, like I just don't enjoy that because I don't enjoy that. Mm. There are access uh, issues, yeah. you know. Uh, that that have to be ad addressed sometimes. And I think that's an interesting, I think that's where I wish some of the stories, you know, like I was talking about stories that are about like, you know, it's not about overcoming sort of mm. whatever your thing is, but I think acknowledging that there are, you know, as you're going out in your world, mm. you know, acknowledging at, that, that there are other, that people are finding different challenges that are that are not yours you know yeah. those interesting things like sub subtle character things so to speak that i think uh sort of mainstream movies you know miss you know you mm. might miss uh the fact that you know where wheelchairs are easily accessible or mm. not easily accessible i think you can find some great comedy in that and i think the the wheelchair community would also find some great comedy and those kinds of things. So it doesn't all have to be serious and like, Oh, uh, like some sort of, you know, teaching teachable moment. Yeah. So yeah, I do think it'd be an interesting uh, portion to uh, you. You would in a longer version, you would see more about some of uh, some of those difficulties of access. Mostly I would say access besides just your human beings being mm. different people. I think it's access, you know, what I would take for granted of being able to do, you mm. know, is not the same. If you look at our bar scenes, because we made it a deaf night, the, if you, if you're, if you care, if you're paying attention, or if you notice, the uh, sounds of the bar are vastly different, right? Yeah. And you, there's not so much talking. Mm -hmm. There's uh, there are performances going on, so there's some, uh, you know, there might be some like beats or whatever, just like when he, he's drumming or those yeah. kinds of things. But uh, there doesn't have to be. And it doesn't mean that deaf people don't listen to music. They do, but mm. they don't need it to feel like there's like energy pumping in a yeah. great time. <laughs> The way a hearing bar would be like, oh, we need to like throw so much music on because it and weirdly, the funny thing is in bars, uh, you know, it's, it's so hard to communicate. But if yeah. you were a bar is way easier, you know, except for the darkness. If it's really dark, they, then they have the same trouble we have when it's yeah. really loud <laughs> where you're like, what? I can't I can't quite see that yeah. what's happening. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing. That and that's also why our bar scenes are a little lifted and light when right. uh, you know when that's the deaf night because uh, you know the lights would be on if mm. you go to a big deaf event and it's nighttime it's way brighter right. than than a normal kind of ambiance kind of hearing event yeah. because they 
to see or they can't, you know, there's no little dark alcoves, right? You I know? See. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I've seen so many, like, I've been to so many parties and it like goes from daylight to nighttime and, and you know, you mm. might turn on a few lights maybe, but you want to keep the kind of, you know, you want to keep that kind of vibe going or whatever. Mm. But the deaf ones, it's like all the lights come on. It's bright. I also feel it's kind of important for people with sort of disabilities also to be seen as objects of desire for other people as well. And also, as you're talking about the differences between somebody who's like normatively able and somebody who suffers from a disability, but how they communicate like love and affection between them, because that's part of one of the sort of social um, issues that this news program was raising, the idea that these people want to be filled, desired, loved and like lusted after the same that I guess a like university, everybody kind of wants to fill that within their lives to fill, deliver sort of a rich and fulfilled um, life. But also I think what's interesting about that is how people with different disabilities communicate love and affection between each other. And I think that's something that, that's something that can be an issue for, for audiences or maybe something they're not, you know, yeah, it's just not something that I'm not used to sort of like seeing, but I definitely feel that that's something that, that I myself would like to see, more of to see a more richer sort of like universal human experience of that kind of thing as well. I don't know if that makes sort of sense at all. Yeah, I totally, I completely agree. I do think we are run by our own sort of biases, you know, of what is sort of what we have been told is sort of attractive and kind of things and who, um, who that is and what they look like and all those kinds of things. Definitely. And, and, um, and that's kind of maybe where, when you were asking me a little bit earlier about like Hollywood, is it any better? And it's like, mm-hmm. eh, kind of, um, because they will put say a deaf character in a certain kind of role, but you're mm-hmm. right. They're very unlikely to put them in the like leading romantic role, uh, you know, easily. Right. It's mm-hmm. going to be, yeah. and that's kind of an easier one because they could be very handsome, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or very attractive yeah beautiful woman or something like that they just don't hear whereas there's obviously other things that people could have that make them physically or visually look less less like what we would normally consider desirable and Mm. it's it's an interesting thing and i i I do think there's something in the desire and stuff but i will say we also bumped into which is slightly in the same thing Mm. when we were doing sort of test screenings we would bump into people who would misinterpret things that were happening in the film basically because they were seeing it because they only knew their their hearing biases so things that were deaf were not necessarily considered um desirable you know sort of one of the elements is alex's sort of attachment to her family and her family is deaf and so her she she elevates her desires of deafness and things like that mm. because of that experience and mm. people hearing, uh, especially, especially men who were hearing, um, oddly enough were, uh, they just were like, that doesn't seem to make sense. And I think it's the same thing. It's what mm. we think is desirable mm. or something that you should want, you know, and it wasn't making sense of like, why would she sort of want to be deaf? Mm. You know? Yeah. And, and it was always our cases, uh, you know, our, my point of view. And like when we were, uh, my producer and I were chatting with, you know, the, you know, the test audience and stuff, it was the case of just like, well, she wants to be like her family and her yeah. family has to be deaf and deaf is not, you know, anything to be ashamed of. 
So why wouldn't she want Mm. to be a part of that community? You know, why wouldn't we all want to be a part of whatever community we uh, associate ourselves with? And we're always disappointed if we can't be full members for Mm. whatever reason. I, I, you know, I sometimes kind of when I'm explaining it to somebody, I say it's very similar to, you know, um, a family comes over from, like, say, Iran or something like that. And yeah. their culture and the parents are so deeply established in that culture. And the kid is but could never go back to Iran and be accepted as a full member, right? They will always be an American part of them because that's where they grew up and some Mm -hmm. of their thought processes are American. And, you know, they just will never 100% fit in there either. You know, Mm -hmm. they will always sort of be a person who who travels between. And Mm -hmm. and there's so many. This particular case that we went with was this, you know, this deaf, hearing deaf kind of divide. There's so many of these divides, so to speak, where we feel like, uh, you know, there, there's something we can't at- obtain that, mm. that we want. Yeah. And I think the path to healing is to realize that, I mean, you're never going to be a full member of it, but you are still a member of it and you still, and you still are worthy and thin mm. and wanted yeah. <laughs> and all things. Right. And it's okay. There is a, there is a way to be, uh, like you said, desired, so to speak, mm. right? And for who you are, even though who you are isn't who everyone else is, you know, yeah. either way, <laughs> you know, it, it's an interesting thing. I do, I do really think our own biases of what is good, mm. what is desirable, what is normal is, are so huge. And we don't even realize yeah sometimes that we're working on this real programming that just it, it you have to be confronted with it and that's you know i think hope coda does a little bit of that like mm. just slightly tips you into going hey think about this for just a quick second you know and the more mm. taps you get i think the more open you are to really kind of delving into um more of that um through through coda kind of brought us in in contact with uh easter seals that right. community there and that organization and so we went to a, a an easter seals event and they also have a film we didn't show but we went to it uh my producer and i went to a film competition where they have uh, it's all at least one a disabled person needs to be involved into it and they okay. don't any kind of disability. They don't. Um, Easter Seals is an organization that kind of promotes disability uh, awareness and yeah. that kind of thing. Anyways, it was really interesting because we talked with a bunch of people and we sort of talked a little bit about what you're discussing in terms of, you know, they're just they're just people trying to get a job, have a family, mm. have a life. You know what I mean? They yeah. want everything. Everybody wants the exact same thing and they want it to be as easy as possible, yeah. you know, and they and and that's the hard part, right? Because it's not as easy as possible. That's mm. not going to be their their life. And so it's it's an interesting thing. And when you have sort of the easy as possible life, like sort of I do, mm. it's an interesting thing that I have to kind of just like go, oh, yeah, you know, you have to be kind of I don't mean like grateful or whatever but you got to go okay so i need to put myself in their shoes a few more times Mm. because 
I need to really open myself up to that. So I'm not just blindly going through life, you know, unaware that I'm I'm judging so many things. It's just without awareness, you know, you just have to kind of like keep bumping into stuff, keep bumping into points of view, keep Mm. kind of, keep, keep kind of loose and open that way. I think. I don't think it's no bad thing. I mean, in terms of our experience, you know, we all have a certain, it's not blinkered, but our experiences are an experience. And until you, you say, until you run into other sort of like other people's sort of like experiences and make you more aware of your own, you know, this is all this sort of transference of like, oh, okay, I'm seeing, I'm seeing something different and it's making me more aware and more perhaps thoughtful, maybe, I don't know, about our own, I guess like about our own, the benefits and, and drawbacks within our own lives, which is always sort of interesting and it's kind of something I try to do with my films, you know, at least they don't always have to be about the same topic or whatever, but I just think they are, it's always push, push a little farther than mm-hmm. just, you know, just push out a little bit farther. It, it's sort of one of the great privileges of do, of making a film is that it can be seen by a lot of people Mm -hmm. and can kind of reach out to people that have no access. There's not one deaf person in their circle of friends or community that they know of. And you can kind of, you know, just sort of like, like I said, just sort of tap on the tap on it or like that program that you saw that kind of opened Mm. your mind. I feel like that's what, uh, that's a great, great thing that entertainment can do. That's what we do best on the, on the other side, we have to make some dollars to sometimes (laughs) just say, you know, yeah. and then I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying we go back to what is normative, what yeah. is already done. You know what I mean? Mm. Because that's easy and mm. it doesn't doesn't push too many boundaries. So, you mm. know, sometimes you can only push so many boundaries right. at any one time. I do think, especially now that we're seeing so many more, you know, filmmakers out there of such varying backgrounds, mm. That the points of view and the way they're going to explore different things, not just their own background, but how they see other people that are, you know, it's just, it's, it's just going to be amazing. I think, I think the, I think we're a little bit heading towards, it feels like sometimes the opposite is everything turns into Disney and things like, mm-hmm. which I love Disney, nothing wrong with Disney, but, um, but as everything sort of turns more like global at the same time, I really think, I mean, with the filmmakers I saw, you know, yeah. that I was to school with and the countries they were coming from and the differences in their point of view and things like that and the ability for films to just travel around the world so easily, you know, it's just the internet. And as long as there's an access point, mm. you can watch it. It's, I just really think we're going to start seeing something maybe more akin to what we saw in the 70s where we saw these really distinctive points of view starting to come out. Yeah. Really just sort of doing their own kind of crazy weird thing and and it really sort of finding audiences because mm-hmm. audiences is sort of – I think I think, you know, obviously not every audience, but I think audiences are getting a little – bored of seeing some of the stuff that they've seen before Mm -hmm. you know they want to you know there's certain things that people love people love a romance but does it have to be the exact same romance you've seen a million times Mm -hmm. or can it have a little something little flavor to it that's you know interesting and kind of opens your mind to a different culture or a different point of view or a different way romance could work out i guess like it's not the stock that a beautiful woman who's blind becomes sighted again (laughs) 
Yeah, right. And then, like falls in, you know, like that old like cliche, like oh, suddenly she's like curious. Like no, she's like blind for the whole of the movie. That's just who she yeah. is. I mean, most blind people that I've seen, mm. and I've only met a few, but you know, they usually have some sort of uh, damage to their eyes, so their mm. eyes are not those beautiful, like whatever. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is something to their their gaze that's different and mm. it looks different and things like that, you know, and, and also, you know, yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, that's why I really I will say I don't really love seeing, you know, people that walk in wheelchairs, partially because I've seen people in wheelchairs and mm. the damage that gravity does their spine, mm. like pushing on them for sitting for mm. however many years they've been sitting yeah makes their body look a certain way that let's just be real. No, no person with a spine, not damaged could look, you know? So it just mm. feels wrong to me these days. I, I more yeah. and more just want, you know, as much authentic casting as I can find. It yeah. just really feels like the best way to do it. Code is a little bit driven by that, but, but even just to have, you know, you have your, your, your doctor doesn't have to be, you know, hearing or sighted mm, yeah. or standing up or any of those things, right? Mm. Could be many more things. So, you know, I'd love to see more of those like smaller roles and smaller things also go to more, more and more diversity. Yeah. However, however that means just more and more people, just more and more versions of people, less and less the same version. Like I love a beautiful person too, but you know, but you know you you get a little tired (laughs) you Mm. know you get like uh i don't think that beautiful person is having that life as much as you know the fantasy version is but the reality is that's not that's that's a different person's life let's see that person live that life well i just wondered in terms of your own sort of background that i know that you won a prestigious air force aeronautical engineering scholarship but you turned that down and I just wonder what was the sort of tipping point in your life that made you choose a career path in the arts and were your parents and friends supportive of that decision? Funny thing is when I was a kid I always wanted to be sort of something scientific. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first I thought I wanted to be a paleontologist because I really liked dinosaurs but then that quickly kind of morphed into something um, like an astronomer or right. an astronaut or something like that something with the stars and, and I was really good at math right. and just goes to show you art and math can go together. You can mm. be good at both. You can choose whichever one you want, but okay. it's not one or the other necessarily. So that's kind of where I went and I was heading that way, but I was also dancing right. uh, simultaneously and I was doing theater and things like that. And somewhere in, you know, somewhere in my, uh, in my senior year of high school, mm-hmm. I just started like having small panic attacks about what my life would be or whatever. Mm. And I just didn't think I was making the right choice to to go towards, uh, to aeronautical engineering and things like that. Although I still love, you know, I still love going to like the science museums a lot and looking at in in Los Angeles, there's a space shuttle that you can go Mm -hmm. look at. And I just go all the time and I'm like, Oh my gosh. I just felt like the the dance, the the singing, the kind of artistic expression mm. was calling to me stronger. Um, it was I felt like the it was the very unsafe choice, and that the engineering was the very safe choice. Yeah. And I 
sure I could have been good at it. And I'm sure I would have had a good life, no doubt. But uh, I don't know. I just it was just sort of an instinctual thing. And maybe it was partially because I just felt I've always felt a little uh, seek. I'm a little bit like Alex is in the film to some. It's like seeking something, not sure what, just Mm -hmm. seeking always seeking something that doesn't feel quite I was so it was that and I just was like I just need to explore that I just need to explore what it feels like to be not in control Mm -hmm. which wasn't wasn't me as a as a teenager I was super like valedictorian Mm -hmm. like studied a lot (laughs) I was that person yeah and and I just I just kind of jumped in and went for it and that's, I don't know. I, I guess that was it. I just suddenly felt that that was what I needed to take my life and explore was sort of this yeah. uncertainty instead of the certainty. Um, and kind of that's what all my films are probably about. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to analyze myself, but I probably they're always a little bit about a person who is definitely not sure where they're going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty universal experience, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah so, it really good. is. Yeah. I don't think I'll go wrong. I think people yeah. can pretty much go for that all the time. Mm. So, yeah. So, it and my family, uh, luckily, uh, were, yeah, they're super supportive. Mm. Um, my parents have always been super supportive. They've always just sort of, you know, they've been those kind of dream parents that right. you sort of want where they're just sort of like, you know, whatever makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Of course, my dad was always worried about how I make a living and mm-hmm. things like that. But, you know, typical kind of things. Yeah. But but he was but he but he never he never stopped me, really. Mm-hmm. He would just sort of caution me, I guess. And, yeah. But then he would ultimately I'd jump off some cliff somewhere and he'd be like, cool, you landed in the river. Awesome. And I'm happy for you. Yeah. And it's good. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that you knew you were jumping off a cliff first. And I was like, yep, I did. Thanks, dad. <laughs> you know, so uh, unusual. I'm sure a lot of parents would be a lot more freaked out. But mm. somehow my parents were um, always kind of like, well, you'll find your way. Mm. you're smart enough you'll you'll either succeed at this or you'll turn around and you'll come back but whatever you'll find a way so yeah. they were very, they were always very um uh they always believed in me maybe more than i believed in myself oh, sometimes it was always a nice thing yeah, yeah it was always a nice thing so just i was just sort of wondering as a sort of female filmmaker and i and part of me like doesn't like asking this question because you when you put the sort of female in front of the filmmaker it's like we're all filmmakers no matter what our sort of like gender is but i do from interviewing other female film filmmakers um that their experience of working in the film industry has has been different how have you sort of navigated the industry and have you obviously i don't want to um go into sort of like uh uncomfortable territory if there are if there has been sort of um transgressions and stuff there but i just wonder in terms of you and your peer group how have you found moving forward through the uh, movie industry and have you maybe come into these sort of issues or problems or or you know people that kind of have there's a couple things that i i noticed uh one uh they there's a tendency for you know for people to want uh, uh, women stories still mm. from from me like stories about women which mm. is fine I like that I love stories about women I'm not against that kind of story but you know I'm open to to directing a, a story with like a man protagonist mm. um, that kind of thing I still feel like that's a little bit there mm. uh, that kind of shows up like if you pitch something that's a little like in the territory of 
a little bit like male skewing territory, like something Mm -hmm. like sci-fi or some sort of like action based thing. Mm -hmm. That's not so much that they're not interested in, but you really have to prove that you've done it before, that this is your thing, that you're like the, you know what I mean? I think harder. I think you just have to prove a lot more. And Mm -hmm. that's the hardest part is like, you have to sort of, I feel like even from USC, some of my kind of cohort counterparts done well so far. Mm -hmm. Those have all been the ones that I know that have done like exceedingly well sort of fit into that sort of stereotypical thing. Mm. Uh, You know, they're a white man. Uh, Mm. They have had a story about a white man, like bullshit kind of something, where the boys like kind of a little. uh, you know, uh, a little socially awkward and trying to find love. And that feels, uh, you know, and, and this is a talented filmmaker and I don't want, you know, I don't want to say that, you know, anything, but the, I'm just saying the stories that are appealing to, it's not about him and his filmmaking. I'm just saying yeah. what the industry is looking for is still somewhat the thing that they've seen before with just mm-hmm. the tiniest little twist. And that's still sort of a little frustrating from that point of view. I do think uh this is my own point of view i don't know this has anything to do with any the industry i don't even know if it's 100 percent true but this is my point this is my own opinion women have had to work so hard to prove themselves coming all the way up Mm -hmm. forever and all kinds of things that there's a sense of there's a sense that when they build their teams, you know, they're like who their team, their DP and there's, you know, all these teams of people mm-hmm. that they is looking for the best one, which is sounds fine, except for that's a very stressful thing to do when you're in the beginning of your career of having to make the best one, having yeah. to put the best team, having like all that kind of stuff. And I feel like my male counterparts don't feel that pressure of if this one doesn't go, that I may never get a chance again. So they use their friends to help them out and things like that and all that stuff. And then that whole group of, of men all get so many more experiences and things like that. And they kind of bond in a much more organic way. And Mm -hmm. I feel like some of that bonding that's, that's kind of socially built in kind of carries them out into the, into the, uh, industry a little bit different and i not that women are not supportive i'm not trying to say that they are but they have had to build team they have had to like attract teams to them look just a little harder it doesn't feel Mm. as easy and so it feels like the women i know haven't made as many things haven't you know helped everybody else make as many things you know what i mean and so i feel like when you walk out into the uh into like the industry there you're still kind of pushing a little hard and we Mm -hmm. all know pushing or you need something it never comes to you (laughs) yeah 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 it's just like some sort of energetic thing and so i think in general, the men walk out and have sort of this like sort of this idea that like it will all work out because it has been working out pretty good for them overall. Yeah. Not not perfect. They're not, you know, some better than others. There's always mm. these hierarchies. It's just yeah. a generation. But 
you know, and then I think, I feel like you walk out and you're a woman and you go to go, I will make this happen for me. It's a different, it's a different way to enter the industry. And I think, I think because of that, the industry responds to us differently right. uh, a little bit. And then I, I do think, you know, obviously if you're an attractive actress or whatever you are in a dangerous place let's just be real mm. there are still there are still those people out there you know mm-hmm. um and if you are a woman who's powerful you will still be referred to by all those typical ways that that people refer, refer to powerful women you know yeah. what i mean it's not considered an asset mm. to have um, strong opinions and not back down from them yeah. where it is, it's still an asset for a, a male director to throw a tantrum and be like, I must have my vision. And the mm. female director that does that, you know, may not see a film for another bit of time. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so I, I still think that's out there and I still have had my, uh, when I've, you know, I've had I've had to defend some of my ideas. I feel stronger than yeah. seeing my counterparts have to defend them. Mm. I've had to make sure I've gone on to sets. I want I did a web series for a friend of mine, and uh, I you know I just guest directed, so yeah. I didn't know the team until I came in, and I definitely was by the technical as you know technical people. I was challenge slightly i don't know if it would have been different for somebody else all i know is what happened for me and i was you know i get it this is your set from the point of view you've been shooting the rest the rest of these episodes but you know it it uh you know still like i i do know this stuff too though you know do you know what a camera lens will do and i know which one i want and i know the difference between sticks and a handheld thing and Mm. i know why i want it so anyways just a little bit of that you know, I do think it's a hundred percent better. I feel like the generation of women right now also have overall come up in a better place. And mm-hmm. so even people that are a little bit younger than me, I went to grad school, but there's some people yeah. that were undergrad. So they're, you know, 22, three right. yeah, like yeah. that. Right. And those women, uh, gosh, they're fairly fearless and uh, more power to them. They are just going out there mm. and they, they don't have as many of the restrictions put on them kind of by the society. And thank God, because they are just pushing out the boundaries and where they're sometimes, I just sometimes go, Oh, I wish I was as brave as that, that particular person <laughs> because yeah. because she really just doesn't see that there's a problem. And that's what I was saying about what I think men have sort of, uh, you know, kind of have had for a long time. It's mm. just sort of that sense of like, it's okay. Yeah. I can go out and be powerful and I can fail and it was okay and I'll pick back up and something else will happen for me and and um, that I think is what's going to change the industry is that those you know it's just being flooded and flooded and flooded right now with 22 year olds who are assistants at this mm, point right yeah. you know they're people's assist but they will not be assistants forever they will be the executives and yeah. And it'll be in a a much more amazing place. Mm. So I have a lot of hope. I do have a lot of hope. So there you have it. I had a great time chatting with Erica. Please do like and subscribe to the show on SoundCloud and YouTube and drop a comment or two. And you can get in touch with me at the Salmoninger1 on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. 
I've been Tom and I'll catch up with you next episode.